Right, we are in the book of 1 Peter today, so if you want to find that on your Bible, on your phone, uh, if you don't have a Bible, then don't worry, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. And this is our last Sunday in 1 Peter. We've been working through it since this January, and we've, we've finished. So you'll get your, your badges on the way out your certificates for having survived one Peter. Um, and then next week we'll do something else. I'm not gonna tell you what that is. It's a nice surprise for you all. Okay. Do, 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 do. Ba, 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 Normally my phone makes this work. I'm not just checking messages, but it's not doing it. So if you'd be so kind as to run it for me, at the back there will make my life a bit easier. Bum, 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 bum. Here we go. Let's read this, or I'll read this. Um, if hmm. No, that is the start. Fine. I thought we were missing a verse at the start there, but we're not. Okay, here we go. I'm going to pray in a minute, and then everything is going to fall into place. <laughs> because I need the Holy Spirit this morning. It says, By Sylvanius, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. On to the next one. Exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. I'll explain that later, don't get scared. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you so much that you are a sovereign God, which means you are in charge of all things. It means we can trust you, knowing that you're faithful, knowing that you're good, knowing that you're good, not just in general, but you're good to us, your people, that you love us richly and passionately, and we wanna devote our lives as um, our sacrifice of worship to you. Not because we have to offer any kind of sacrifice to win any sort of favor to you, but because we want to. It's our act of worship and devotion to you. We want to say, Jesus, we love you. We want to follow you. And part of how we do that, Father, is by studying your word and hearing you speak to us. And we pray that you would do that this morning as we look at these verses together. Amen. Amen. If you'd lived here in, in Amsterdam in the 16th century, about 500 years ago, uh, the city would obviously been a lot smaller, but uh, one third of all the buildings, all the property in the city would have been uh, monastic properties in religious property. And one fifth of all the population would have been either, would have been someone who would have uh, been part of some sort of religious order. So they would have been a nun or a monk. One fifth of the city which if you imagine that today, one-fifth of our city would be about 150,000 people, which obviously would be quite a lot. You could fill Ajax's football stadium a number of times over with that number of people. And when you have that number of people in a city, 
one-fifth of the city who all believe in one thing, that, that, shapes, that would have shaped what city life would have been like. Everybody would have known Christians uh, if they weren't one themselves, and they probably most likely were. They would have had friends who were monks and nuns, which to most of you feels like a very alien idea. But that's what city life would have been like, and it would have affected the culture of the city, how people interacted, what people did, what life was like in the city. But obviously today, in 2018, quite the opposite is, is true. There definitely aren't one-fifth of this city who would believe in Jesus or would be religious, as in they would worship some sort of God, at least, that they would know and declare in their own hearts, as in whether they were Buddhist or uh, uh, whatever other religion. That's not true today. And that shapes very much our city. The majority of our city would probably declare that they were atheists, as in they believe in no God whatsoever. And that affects what our city is like. Affects how people think in our city, how people make decisions, what life is like. And beyond our city, that's very much true of lots of culture in this country and in Western Europe. Many people don't believe in any sort of God and have rejected God. God is dead and they've moved on from that. So when Peter writes this letter, although he wrote it 2,000 years ago to churches uh, in a very different part of the world in a very different time, it's actually incredibly relevant to us because he was writing to people that at the start of the book in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, I'm writing to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion and then he names a number of places. So these are people that would have had to have fled out of Jerusalem because of religious persecution. They'd been spread all over the Middle East, all around the Mediterranean, and they would have been the only believers in Jesus in their place. They were exiles. They'd been exiled out of Jerusalem, sent somewhere else, and they would have felt very lonely in their faith, in cultures that were opposed to what they believed. And we're very similar to that. Many of us have found ourselves in this city, and we could feel quite lonely in what we believe if you're a Christian here, you might feel like that sometimes. And Peter, at the end of this letter, is looking back to the start of this letter, because he talks about uh, she who is at Babylon, you might have noticed in verse 13, and thought, what's that about? He's talking about the church in Rome. That's where Peter was writing from. He was in Rome at the time. He's writing this letter, and he's, he's comparing the city of Rome at the time to, what, to the, the Old Testament city of Babylon, which would have been a center of power and oppression and would have oppressed the followers of God. And now in Rome, the church there is experiencing the same thing. It's this center of power, it's this mighty city that is oppressing believers. And he's writing to others, sending their, their greetings. And Peter's reminding us that for believers at the time spread across the Mediterranean, for us now spread across the world, that we're called to be his new people. He's called out the church as his elect exiles, but sent into the world for, for a purpose, to live as believers in a foreign culture, as in not that you have to move to another country away from where you've been born, but as people who believe in something that most people around them don't believe in. And that can sometimes feel like you're a bit of a foreigner. 
We have to work out our faith in a culture, in a time which is often opposed to what we, what we believe. And his encouragement to us, at the end of this letter, he says it a couple of times, he says, stand firm. And it's a phrase that appears quite a lot in the New Testament. Paul uses it a few times where he says things like stand firm or hold fast or be steadfast. And they're writing to people just like us who were living in a time where believing in Jesus wasn't popular, where they would be mocked and ridiculed, sometimes driven out of the places they lived, where the way they wanted to live felt very much against the flow of the tide, where they could feel sometimes uh, under attack, not sure how they would make decisions, how they would do life. And he encourages us to stand, to stand firm. And often in the kind of the, the time we live in, the, the, this kind of cultural moment that we're in, it can sometimes feel like there's a storm raging all around us. Even if you're not a believer in Jesus, you might feel like that, that so many things happen. There are so many bad news stories flying around. There are so many things that we are, are told to care about or worry about or fear about. And all of that is accentuated. It's made worse by social media because all the time we're getting thrown things at us. You've got to care about this. You've got to worry about this. This concern is coming your way. And big global issues like uh, things like immigration with effect, uh, the effect of globalization all around the world of people moving into different countries, the effect that has on cultures. There's lots of questions and we think, I don't know what to do about it. Issues of sexuality, which seems under attack all the time. And there's all sorts of issues that rise up. And we can think as Christians, I don't know, what, what, do, I, what, what do I believe about this? Do, what, do I, what even do I need to stand firm on? What do I need to believe in? How, does this, how do I live in a culture like this? And we, we're bombarded by so much information, so many ideas, so many opinions. It can sometimes just feel exhausting it, it could just feel exhausting and not just for believers many people who live in our city just feel that they're caught up in this hectic lifestyle and they can just feel tired and weary and exhausted bombarded all the time with things that they're supposed to believe in this is what your diet should look like this is what your exercise regime should look like this is what your work performance should look like all the time, we're driven to do so many things, and people can often just feel a sense of exhaustion. I was at a, a conference this week, which is all about religion in the city, all sorts of different religions being talked about. And this one lady got up to talk about, about yoga, how she practices yoga. She's developed a particular strand of yoga that she practices. And she described it as, she called it her effective pain relief. That's what it was for her. It was pain relief. And she said, it's to recharge me to lead my hectic life in this city. She just needed something, just some space, some time, just to recharge, because life was just too hectic, too exhausting. And we can feel like that. So many people in our city will feel like that, just exhausted all the time. 
and we can feel like, I don't know, what, I don't know what's solid. Because opinion changes all the time. Things that we were supposed to care about five years ago, we now have discovered that that's wrong and we're supposed to care about something else. All the time, opinions change, ideas change. And when it comes to standing firm, the question is, well, what, what do I stand on? What, what, what should I stand on? And it's an important question for you to ask. What, what am I going to stand on? What am I going to believe in? What am I going to build my life upon? Whether you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus or not, it's a question that you should ask yourself. What, what am I going to believe in? What's my life based upon? Because there are different things you could base your life upon, and you could base it on, on popular culture, on what people around us say, the zeitgeist, popular opinion. And if you do that, it's, it's shifting sand because it will change all of the time. You'll never be on anything solid. If you adopt a kind of progressive belief system, then the problem is, is no one knows where it's progressing to. No one knows where it's progressing from. It's a roller coaster. You'll constantly be going from one position to the next. You'll feel like you're on a tiny little boat, lost in the ocean, crashed around, by the waves and the wind. I need to believe in this, I need to believe in that. I, I shouldn't do that, I should do this. You'll be exhausted. You'll be unsteady. You could just say, well, to be honest, this, this, this might sound what you would expect uh, to hear in a church, because you might think, well, Christians are just weak, needy people. We were singing earlier about God being a defender of the weak. And you might think, well, it's just because you guys are pathetic. You know, you just need a crutch to stand on. Um, What you really need is just to be secure, you know. You just be confident. Be secure in who you are. Just be confident. Just have some some belief. Believe in yourself. Then it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what culture says. You just believe in yourself. Which, again, that's something that people believe in our culture. The most important thing is what you believe about yourself. That's why there's so much confusion about gender, because people say, well, it, it doesn't matter what, what, what my, my physical body looks like, it's how I feel that's important. It's what I believe about myself is important. And you could say, well, that's the most, the most important thing. Well, let me take you to a, a writer called uh, G.K. Chesterton, who, who said this, his publisher, because he was a writer, his publisher was talking to him, And he was talking about somebody else, and he said, that man will get on in life because he believes in himself. He believes in himself, and sounds like good advice. But Chesterton replied to him, shall I tell you, I know of men who who believe most in themselves are. For I can tell you, I know of men who believe in themselves more colossally than Napoleon or Caesar. I know where flames the fixed star of certainty and success I can guide you to the thrones of the supermen. The men who really believe in themselves are all in lunatic asylums. That's what he said. Because his point was that if you believe utterly in oneself, then you're, you're kind of going against the flight of all wisdom throughout all history. If you believe so much in yourself, then essentially that's the definition of, of a lunatic. I read a news story about a guy that believed he was a dragon. Seriously, 
He, he, as in, he believed his gender was that of a dragon. He wasn't male or female, he was a dragon. And he'd had surgical modification, as in they'd made his tongue pointy. They'd done things to his body so he could be a dragon. Because he said, I, I, he believed so heart, wholeheartedly that he was a dragon. That's what he believed about himself. I think in this room we could say, hold on a second, that doesn't sound right to me. That sounds like the act of, of a lunatic. That sounds like the act of someone who's not all there in their head. And that's what happens if you so wholeheartedly believe in yourself above everything else, then that's not a really very solid foundation to build your life upon. And his publisher replied to him and said, well, if a man is not to believe in an important question, if you're not going to believe in yourself, then, then what are you going to believe in? You've got to believe in something to build your life upon. And you could say, okay, I know the answer. We're in a church. The answer is we, we believe in it, Jesus. Jesus is the answer. And that's, that's true. However, we should be careful with that because even as Christians, we can sometimes live a bit blindly to what life is really like. We can expect kind of instant results because that's the sort of world that we live in where we expect things to happen instantaneously and we, we can treat Jesus like the genie in the bottle or the drug that we take, that you insert Jesus and you get instant results. So I, I, I hurt my ankle, I know I keep going on about this, so sorry, I won't talk about it anymore. I hurt my ankle a few months ago running so I've not been able to run. So I start, started doing this, this workout regime. I've got this app on my phone, right? And you, you download this, this app, uh, and then it gives you all sorts of things to, to do for you know, your abs and your arms and things like that. But the pictures on the app are remarkable because these, these, these men in these pictures have muscles that I didn't know you could have muscles there. You know, they have veins bulging out of places that you think, is, are, you supposed to, are they supposed to be there? Because that looks scary. And, and you think, well, I've done these exercises, and how come I don't look like this guy? <laughs> and you do it for a day, and you think, well, surely I should... Where are the results? Why don't I look like He-Man? What is going on? But we expect these instant results. And when we, so we, we, we sort of take this Jesus drug, we say, I'm going to believe in Jesus. Now, everything in my life will be perfect. No worries, no concerns, everything's just going to go my way. We expect some instantaneous magic to happen. And when we don't get instant results, what happens is we, we, get, we get disillusioned. Happens in the church. We come along and think, this is a great, this is a great church, I'm going to have a great time here. And then, and then we discover it's not quite as shiny and glamorous as, as we thought it was. People don't answer your messages. People aren't as friendly to you as they first were when you first joined. Or, or maybe just in your life, things go wrong, something happens, you get disillusioned. What, what, what's life gonna look like? Where, where is this good life I was promised? And the thing about disillusionment is that it's actually a really good thing in a way because you think about what that word means, disillusionment, it means the loss of illusion. <laughs> it means the loss of any pretense. Any kind of false illusion you've had of what life is going to look like. 
Because faith, believing in Jesus, isn't some magic pill that you take. It, it, it reaches right down into the reality of your life. And what it does is it exposes a better reality to build your life upon. It goes right into all the lies and disillusionment and disappointment, all the mistakes and regrets of your life, and it pulls back the, the curtain and says, this is what life is really like. And it's not that you just take this thing and it magically happens, but Jesus comes down and reaches into the brokenness of your life, and he works there. He doesn't just whisk you away into this magic kingdom where everything's perfect. He works with your life as it is now. He's a God that comes to restore you piece by piece, little by little, puts you back together again, rebuilds your broken relationships, little by little rebuilds your broken life. That's the sort of God that we believe in, not some genie in the sky. And we need, as that's why Peter addresses us as these, the culture that we live in. You won't just walk into your office and say, hallelujah, I'm a Christian, and everyone falls on their knees and starts worshiping. It's not going to be like that. It might be. I would imagine it's probably not going to be. And we need to be real about the, the society we, we live in here in Amsterdam. There's going to be things that, that people say about what you believe that will, that will scare you. You'll find people will in one sense or other, will we'll persecute you because they say, if you believe in Jesus, how can you believe in this? Is that really what you believe? And you'll think, I don't know what to say about that. How do I respond? But Peter wants us to be real about that, to know that we're, we're exiles. We need to have this sober reality, but yet we have this fervent hope in the ultimate victory of God. As Wilson was talking about last Sunday, we, we know the end of the story. We have this solid hope, this anchor, this steadfast, sure hope that we build our life upon. That even though for a little while, for now, we may have some struggles and some trials, some sacrifices, we know we have a wonderful future ahead in Christ. We have this deep hope within our hearts. And what is really important is not the, the standing itself, but what we're standing on, isn't it? It's not, the, it's not that, that Peter's just saying to us, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. The emphasis is on what we're standing upon, that we stand on, on a rock, on a solid foundation, that's what it is. Jesus talks about not standing on, not building your house on sinking sand, but building your house, building your life upon the rock that is Christ, building your life upon, upon him. And we to stand firm, as Peter tells us here, on the true grace of God. That's what he encourages us to stand firm in, the true grace of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, this is Paul writing, it says, now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. That's what we stand firm on. That's the solid ground beneath us is the gospel, the true grace of God. This true grace of God, it's 
It's all the blessings, all the strength, all the help, all the forgiveness, this rich relationship we have with our Father in heaven, all of which, all of which we get to receive daily from him, all of which we need and none of which we deserve. That's what grace is. We get to receive these lavish blessings, as it says in Ephesians, lavished upon us richly, all of which we need for life, none of which we deserve. It's all the grace of God poured out for us. And Peter in this letter exhorts and declares, he encourages us to a way of life that above everything else stands on God, who he is, what he's done on his word, on his love, on his grace. He calls us to a way of living in light of this new glorious reality of his kingdom, this kingdom of grace and power, and not focusing on the reality of the world around us, but knowing he's caught us up in something new, something wonderful to be his people. And we stand firm on that grace. And that might sound a bit ethereal to you, so it's important to think, well, what, what does it mean to, to stand for? How do, I, how do I do that? And there's a few hints here that Peter gives us of how we're to stand firm. First of all, he, he, he says that he talks about she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. As I said, Peter's writing from the church in Rome. He's sending their greetings and together, we, we get to stand shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters all around the world who believe what we believe. And there's different, you know, there's different emphasis and people say different things, different parts of the Bible that people get more excited about than others. But we still have brothers and sisters that we can stand firm with. And that together, it's not, we sometimes get so caught up in, in our own purpose in life, in our, what am I gonna achieve? I'm going to be a world changer, that we forget that how God really wants to change the world is a whole army of people all around the world that we get to stand together with. We get to stand firm and receive their support and encouragement, the global church together. And also, we get to stand together, not just with the church all around the world, but together as a family, as his people here in this, in this city. He says, greet one another with the kiss of love, which that might scare you a little bit. Paul uses the phrase, uh, uh, a holy kiss, which you might think, is this some kind of new technique that I don't know about? <laughs> well, well, it's important when you read these things to, to make sure that we obey the meaning of the command. Because in that culture at the time, it would have been thoroughly appropriate and it would be normal particularly for family members, for brothers and sisters, to when they met each other, to greet with, with a kiss. And in some parts of the world today, that would still be true. In other parts of the world, if you tried that, they would punch you in the face, okay? I'm not gonna kiss my brother, because he is ugly, and that would be a bad decision. And if he tried to kiss me, I would punch him in the face. 
Actually, I saw him over the weekend, and we, 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 for the first time since we were teenagers, we shared a room together overnight because we were away at an event together, and we slept together in a shed. There you go. So I'll tell you more about that story another time. But uh, here, to obey the meaning of this command is, what he's saying is that we should greet one another as brothers and sisters, as those that love each other affectionately and dearly, to build a family life that is vibrant and full of love and care. It's not talking about kissing or even shaking of hands. That might be appropriate, whatever the way you, you want to greet people that they're comfortable with. But he's talking about this idea of family love that sent into this city, God has sent a people together. And not just one, but there are other churches in this city, families of God that he sent on mission to this city but one of the primary ways we express that mission is by being family together. One of the primary ways we stand firm as individuals is standing shoulder to shoulder with other brothers and sisters. We get to work out life together. We get to go through the trials and the joys, the disappointments and the victories, we get to do it together. When we have issues and problems, we can, we can find a friend, we can call them up, we can meet them for coffee, we can do whatever we need to do to support one another. We stand firm together as a family. And also, we get to stand firm with, with peace. He finishes this book by saying, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And I think one of the defining characteristics of what the church can be, what the people of God can be in a culture like this, a culture that's exhausted, that's anxious, that's full of fear and worry. As as believers, we get to be the opposite of that. We get to be a people of peace because we know how the story ends. We get to be this wonderful non-anxious presence. That's what your workplace needs. That's what your, your street needs. That's what your university needs. Some people who, because when you really get underneath the surface of people's lives, you'll find so much worry, so much disappointment, so much confusion. And they'll look at you and see somebody who's, who's just stable, secure, who knows who they are in Christ, who just has a peace that thinks, well, I don't know how the, all these things are gonna work out. I, I don't know how this is gonna happen but I know that Jesus is in control, so I can trust him. I don't know what's gonna happen with this relationship. I don't know what's gonna happen with my job or where I'm living. I don't know how all these circumstances that seem opposed to one another, how they're gonna to come together. But I know that I can trust in Jesus, that I don't have to worry, that I can take those worries and fears and turn them into prayer. I can turn them into a devotion to God. And when you be that non-anxious presence in the world around you, that will affect people. I think, why is it that, that you don't have these same worries that we do? Why, why, when we all feel exhausted, are you not like that? Because they're, all the time, they're, they're trying to build their life on sinking sand. They're adrift at sea, clinging on to a plank of wood, hoping that they don't sink. 
and you get to live a life stood firmly on a rock, a solid foundation. And ultimately, finally, how do we stand firm? It says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. We're not just standing on Christ, we're, we're in him. It says in verse 10 that we were talking about last week, that Jesus will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. If you think about that, that's, that's everything you need in life. That he will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, establish you. That means that all the time, in every circumstance, God's there behind the scenes. The strength you need, the thing you maybe think you've managed to find it within yourself, that was God. The circumstances that suddenly kind of just fall into place, you know, how did that happen? That was God. All the time, he's working, his grace is at work, all of you, because you're in Christ now. And he's at work in your life. Let me just finish. I just thought it'd be helpful to read some of these verses from Psalm 139. Because so often we, we think that, you know, as, as often as, the, as Peter and Paul in the New Testament, as they tell us to stand firm, to be steadfast, to hold fast, which is true, we should do, do those things. But all the time we need to know that actually it's God that's holding on to us that he's got you, that he's holding you fast, that he's got his grip on you. You're in the grip of his grace. It says in Psalm 139, actually, why don't we finish? Why don't you just close your eyes if you're comfortable to do that and just let these words, they're not gonna appear on the screen, don't worry, just let them sink into your heart as I read them. This is so powerful. It says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I'll give thanks to you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, 
skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Jesus, that's our, that's our prayer as followers in you, Jesus. Knowing that you're, you're intimately acquainted with all our ways, all the good and the bad, you've seen it all. You know it all. Every word we've spoken, you know it before it's even come out of our mouth. All the days ahead of us are already written in your book. You formed us in our mother's wombs. You've built us, you've established us, you've confirmed us, you've strengthened us. Your right hand has laid hold of us. And we want to pray, Jesus, that you would search us, you would know our hearts, all our most anxious thoughts. Thank you, God, that you know them all. And we ask that you come with your lavish grace. You pour out your spirit upon us to help us to stand. In a world where there's so much exhaustion, in our own hearts where we can feel so tired all the time, we want to stand firm in you on the rock that is Christ, knowing that that's the only way really to build our lives. We don't want to depend on ourselves or what other people say. We want to build our life on you, Jesus, the rock beneath our feet. We can only do that by your help, Father. So we pray you'd strengthen us, confirm us, establish us by your grace. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.